check, 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 you know, everything. I, I was checking things off the list and I was feeling good about it because, you know, I'm, I'm very task driven. I like getting things done. I have millions of checklists and I love crossing things off. And so I was getting near the end of that checklist, you know, there, and there was supposed to be some promise of ha happily ever after or some reward at the end. And as I got closer to that list and, and started achieving things that I thought were getting me closer to the end, I started realizing that this is not going to be enough for me. I'm not headed towards happiness. Welcome to This is 40. I'm Reds. I turned 40 recently, as did my co-host and friend Alexia. We're both entrepreneurs living in Paris, and we were a little overwhelmed with it all, to be honest. We thought, what if we could tap into the wisdom, the humor, the fears, resilience, and the beauty of all of the 40-year-olds we knew? Wouldn't that be something? And that's how This is 40 was born. A show where we talk to some of the most fun, brilliant, resilient, creative people in our everyday lives who made a decisive change in their way of living, thinking and being in the world for the better mostly as they hit their 40th. I'm Alexia. And I'm Reds. And we are your hosts. Join us and listen to our guests as they open up their hearts to share their experience of turning 40 and the gift it brought them. And we ask you, what is 40 to you? Hello, everyone, and welcome to our first episode of This is 40. We're very excited to have you on. We're very excited to be doing this. It feels like a dream come true, especially given the current times. I'm Reds, and I'm one half of Reds and Alexia, your co-hosts. We're coming to you from Paris in the midst of COVID. And I feel like that's a great way to begin and to introduce our first guest, Bomi. I want to thank you very much for listening to us, for showing your appreciation, and then most of all, for joining us on this adventure of examining 40s, the thrills, the spills, and all of the great stuff. A big thank you also to everyone who wrote in saying, this resounds with them too. So if you haven't sent us your experience of turning 40, please do. You could be on our show soon. I'm recording this in my little podcast pod at home while my two kids are being kept calm for a little while and quiet by my husband. You know, Alexia lives literally 10 minutes away, but we obviously can't hang out together to record because of social distancing. So now we're doing this in our own homes, even though we're technically like 10 minutes apart. Now, our first guest is a very special person, and we thought this would be a great way to introduce This is 40, to have our first show, because she embodies so much of what we thought turning 40 would be like and the experience that we've heard from our friends. So our first guest is a very special person. She's lived all over the world. She's had a very exciting career as a journalist for the IHD followed by her career in startups. She's also a hardcore runner. And so for those of you who identify with being able to escape for just a little while and to run to clear your mind, this will resound beautifully with you. She talks about running along the Seine in Paris on the Quai up to Trocadero. And if you've been to Paris, you know that that's a beautiful part of the city. And usually has a lot of tourists, but obviously now because of COVID, no one's allowed in the country and you can get out for like an hour a day. You're allowed out for an hour a day. And I guess she's making the most of that to clear her mind and get ready for her day. Bomi talks about checking all the boxes. And, you know, we've all grown up with those boxes, right? Like the traditional definitions of success, go to a great school, get a sought after career, have an amazing marriage, have super bright, great kids. She had all of that. And then when she had 40, she wasn't expecting her world to shake, but it did. And she started the questioning, 
or sometimes also known as the midlife crisis. And ironically, as she says in her words, very often we expect men to have a midlife crisis. We don't really realize that women go through it too, just express it very differently. So she talks about that, which is great to hear. And then in her own words, she explains how once one brick falls, the whole wall falls. And, you know, she talks and then her amazing, inspiring voice, she explains how she herself then brought this wall down once she started to question what she had expected and accepted as success and how it wasn't meeting what she wanted now that she was 40 and how she built it back up piece by piece to her standards and not ones that are dictated by our definitions of success. Bomi touches on so many of the sore spots we have as women. Like if you've ever wondered how life might look like if more women became career superstars while their husbands take care of the kids or what it would be like if your family totally defied norms just so you could meet your definition of freedom and happiness. Well, at 40, Bomi turned things around and she's your girl. Go ahead and listen. We're so excited to have Bomi. And if there's one good thing about COVID is that she's not jetting around the world somewhere. So we were able to get an hour of her time. Happy listening. I'm sure you're going to love this episode. Hello. Bonjour. How was your morning run? Bonjour. Good morning. And uh, it's very nice to see you both. Uh, it was really good, actually. It's, it's beautiful out. And I like to run down by the river, you know, and at this hour, there's not a lot of people yet out. And it's, it's sunny today. On the other side of the river, actually, you know, people talk about the Eiffel Tower when they think about Paris. But it's actually on the other side where Trocadero is that has the most beautiful view. So it's, it's a great time to be in Paris. You actually make me dream of my hometown and I live in it right now. So <laughs> well done, Bomi. <laughs> but tell us, how does it feel taking on a brand new, super demanding job just as Paris went into COVID lockdown with three young daughters at home? How do you do that? So yeah, COVID, I mean, COVID certainly has been a challenging time for all of us. And there've been a lot of curveballs um, thrown our way. Some days have been exhausting between homeschooling and working from home and managing new routines. It's, it's really been an adjustment. But, you know, besides the bored, uh, self stir crazy kids and my husband who is going crazy because he has to put up with us now 24 7 i'm very aware that the people you know on the front lines of this are fighting a much much more difficult battle so i'm thankful that we're safe and you know paris is a is still a wonderful place to be in despite you know the lockdown everything we've been through having to fill out a form to go and get our baguette in the morning <laughs> you know Despite all that, it's a, it's a beautiful city. And I was just thinking this morning, you know, that they talk about a honeymoon period. And it really, I still feel like this is a really wonderful place to live. It's, it's just, it's gorgeous, you know. So I'm, I'm grateful. On the work front, Bomi, has it been challenging keeping up with work with your kids at home and homeschooling? How does that, how's that going? <sighs> Yeah, that's been a whole new routine. I'm sure, you know, I'm sure you both understand it's, it's always a moving process. You try to put certain routines in place and then have to adjust. And I think the only constant really has been the change. So um, on the work front, you know, I was fortunate to have at least a few weeks at the office face to face with my new colleagues before going into the lockdown. So I think that's really the key for remote working is to have some foundation before having to do everything through digital means, you know, through email, through, through video, because you have a sense of how that person communicates and what the two or three lines, you know, in an email, even if it's a short message, you know, what kind of intention there is behind it. So that's actually been, it's fine. And, you know, a lot of people are working from home, but there are some that are not able to work from home. So actually it's, it's been, it's been very good to be able to do that and to see some of the routines that I don't usually get to see, you know, my kids doing their schoolwork and interacting with their teachers and, you know, how the day goes on when I'm not usually around. So, yeah, it's, it's been an interesting time. 
You've had an exciting career as a journalist at the International Herald Tribune. You've lived all over the world, in Korea, in Ottawa, and now in Paris. And yet you let your former career go and you've moved now to something quite different. So it's uh, flattering and funny to hear you describe my career in such wonderfully positive terms because... I never had a grand plan. I just did what I felt I needed to do at the time and picked up opportunities as they came. At some point after leaving journalism, I serendipitously discovered the world of medtech and startups. And I had the opportunity to work for a French company that was in the field of cancer detection and then moved on to you know a couple other startups after that. And they've all been very rich experiences, but there was never really a, a grand, you know, strategy behind it. I, I know a lot of people have their dream jobs and their dream titles. But for me, I think the driving force was just that I really enjoyed the people that I worked with. And I met people along the way who were willing to take a chance on me and give me an opportunity to do something that I didn't necessarily have the credentials for. And so it just, it kind of evolved that way. And at some point along the way, I started feeling a disconnect between the validation I started receiving from others and what I was feeling inside. And I realized that I'd been following, I guess, a kind of a roadmap given to me by my parents, by society, by the people defining success. And I had been following it quite diligently, you know, go to a good school, get a decent degree, check find a life partner, get married, have kids, check, work hard, you know, find a good job, climb the corporate ladder, check, you know, buy an apartment, settle down, you know, be active in the community, you contribute to a good cause, check, 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 you know, everything. I, I was checking things off the list and I was feeling good about it because, you know, I'm, I'm very task driven. I like getting things done. I have millions of checklists and I love crossing things off. And so I was getting near the end of that checklist you know there and there was supposed to be some promise of ha happily ever after or some reward at the end and as i got closer to that list and and started achieving things that i thought were getting me closer to the end i started realizing that this is not going to be enough for me i'm not headed towards happiness this looks like success on paper you know, people are telling me it's success. You know, you live in Paris, you have three beautiful kids, you have a husband, you must be so happy. And I wasn't, you know, I, and I couldn't figure out why. And I thought, you know, I, I've done everything I'm supposed to do. I felt a bit, I felt really let down. I was disappointed. And this all happened around the same time as a friend of mine who, you know, a friend of mine died suddenly. And it was someone who had been in the prime of his life and it was just a, a terrible, unfortunate accident. But it was also for me, a sudden realization of my own mortality and how finite my existence really is. And I guess up until then I felt like I was invincible. I had all the time in the world to do everything I wanted to do. I just needed to keep going. And I felt that, you know, suddenly I found myself asking, what if, today is the last day, you know, am I happy with what I've done with my life? And a lot of the times the answer was no. So, so I set out to, you know, try to do something about it. I, you know, I wanted to change something. And I guess the easiest thing to change at the time, it seemed logical, was my career. And so that was, you know, that's when I decided to enroll in a, a part-time executive MBA program. And it was, it was a turning point. I guess the MBA was sort of the easy part. That was sort of the trigger for, you know, for making a change. And that's, that was sort of the starting point of my logic of, okay, if things aren't working, if I don't like this trajectory, then I'll go and get a degree. I'll get some credentials. I'll expand my options and things will be better. But what ended up happening was, you know, when I started my classes, it was very, it was a very intense experience. You know, I was on the road a lot for work. You know, all of us, we were 50 people in that class. We all had full-time jobs. You know, a bunch of us had children, partners. It was, 
you know, definitely not an easy thing to do. And I think a lot of people that I met at the time, without perhaps knowing it when they made the decision like me to take this on, it was a big commitment, you know, and, and really I felt often extremely stretched, you know, in terms of what I could do. And there were struggles that came with it. But what happened was when I started the program, and I think a lot of us did also, it was purely for professional reasons. You know, I didn't think about the personal side of it. And I certainly didn't think I would make any friends going into it. It was really, I'm going to go get a degree and come out and be able to continue my climb you know, professionally. What ended up happening, and I saw this, you know, in a lot of my classmates, is when you start digging into the reasons why you're unsatisfied or unhappy, then, you know, you touch one brick and the entire wall is impacted. And really the revelation that I had was, okay, this is not about my professional life. It's not about my career. It's about my life. You know, it's about me. And once you start digging into that, then inevitably you start questioning a lot of the foundations of who you are, your values, you know, your upbringing, what you think is right. And I did do a lot of thinking about, you know, growing up as a child of Korean immigrants in Canada and struggling with, you know, cultural paradoxes, you know, being told, don't contradict your elders. But then the North American side saying, stand firm and, and speak up for what you believe in, you know, put the group's needs above your own, which is very tied to the Confucian, you know, historical values of Korean society. But the Canadian side saying, you know, you need to be self-reliant and independent. And so trying to reconcile these things, I guess, was a real struggle, but also part of what was happening in a lot of our lives is that we started changing the professional aspect, you know, through the MBA and then realized, wow, you know, I've, I've touched something that has made my entire wall fall down. And, and for me, that was, you know, sort of the visual that I had was, okay, I've taken on this extra project. It's really fun and stimulating in a lot of ways, but all of a sudden, you know, it's not just about my career, it's my entire life. And I don't know what I did, but it's kind of in pieces now in front of me. And <laughs> I don't know how to rebuild it. I'm, I'm definitely not happy with the result. You know, how do I get out of this? So there were a lot of moments of solitude, you know, a lot of moments where I thought, okay, I need to sort this out. I don't think anyone really understands what I'm going through. And this is why I think a lot of us in this program built strong bonds because before then I didn't really hear other people talking about this. You know, I know we like to call it the midlife crisis. It has such a negative connotation, but really it's a, it's a questioning. It's a period of, of questioning. It's, it is a crisis in a, in a sense, but it can be very positive. And for me, it was, you know, being able to sit down and for the first time in my life, think about what I wanted, you know, very selfishly, just say, you know what, if I could redo everything my way without having to please other people, without having to use other standards, you know, from society, from my culture, you know, as the bar to measure whether I was successful or not. If I could redo that, then what would my life look like? And so that was the process that helped me to begin picking up the different bricks of that wall that made up my life. And in doing that, you know, there were very clearly some aspects that I didn't feel like I needed to keep anymore. You know, there were bricks that represented things that I had done because other people told me that I should do it or because somewhere in the back of my head, I knew that my parents would be happy if I could tell them I did this. And it sounds, you know, it sounds a lot like the teenage years, but in a sense it was, except that, you know, it, now when you're in your forties, you kind of have your, your own life and you're not living with them and dependent anymore. So the burden is much heavier but in that process, I started rebuilding that wall, which, you know, represented my life. And 
in getting rid of a lot of things and, and just letting go of things that I felt weren't really contributing to what I wanted my life to be. This sounds so obvious in hindsight, but I had room to fill it with new things that actually that were important to me that I didn't have room to put, you know, before. And so that meant, you know, letting go of some of the things that I was doing more out of obligation than out of fulfillment and realizing, oh, you know, that extra time I have now, that mental space, you know, that I have, I can devote to being fully focused with my children when I'm with them. You know, I don't have multiple lists going off in my head. I can, I can set, you know, tell that internal monologue to be quiet a little bit more easily because I'm not trying to do so much. And the, the, you know, the extra time that I've created, the extra space I've created, I can devote to the people in my life who need me the most. And so it was through that process that I, I started, I guess, changing directions, which, you know, in the end did include my career and a lot of the choices that I've made recently, but overall was very much a determining factor in being able to change the direction of my life. Hmm. And changing the direction of your life towards what, I guess, it sounds like it, I guess you can call a good life now. So what, what would you say is a good life to you now? So you're asking me about success and happiness. And I honestly, I don't have the answers. I feel really silly, you know, being asked to give advice to people sometimes because I really, I don't have anything figured out. I, I, I'm still trying to figure things out and every day is different. And sometimes I feel like, okay, I can do this. I've got it. But other days it's a complete disaster. And, and children have a way of, you know, really, you know, bringing a lot of uncontrollable variations and, <laughs> and unexpected turns to each day, which is, you know, I think that's, that's sort of maybe where I've, I've tried to put the bar. Success is, you know, success is so boring. You know, we have all of our role models, all of the people we look up to, you know, they're, they're successful and it's wonderful. And it's, I love hearing other people's stories, but what I love the most is hearing how they got there. You know, what were the failures along the way? Where, where were the moments of struggle to allow these people to reach a certain point in their life where success probably doesn't matter as much anymore, where you don't put your focus on it? I mean, I think, you know, we grew up in a time where we were told that we could do everything. You know, we could have a career, we could have children, we could build a family, we could you know, live a good life, we could have financial stability. You just needed to work really hard and, you know, do everything in your power to get there. And I, you know, I did that. I, I really did try very hard. And when I got to a certain point, I realized, you know, this is not going to do it for me. You know, I don't, I don't want this definition of success for me. Success is more, you know, I want to live a life that is full of freedom and independence and being able to take care of the people I love and do the things that bring me pleasure, you know, as simple as going for a morning run, which, you know, allows me to you know, get into the right mental space to be able to do everything else. And then, and that for me is a good life. You know, it, it's very boring, I think. And, and I think uh, a, a lot of us have grown up thinking, oh, you know, I need to be a jet setter. And we're, we're all very international. I mean, you know, Emirates, you and Alexia, you know, we've all lived in many different places. And it's been so easy to just hop on a plane or a train and get places. You know, I have family that is in they're on three different continents right now. And I've always had this comfort of knowing at any time I can just get on a plane and go and see them if I need to. And this period we've, we've, you know, are now living in has brought that reality a bit more, you know, in, into a different perspective, but that was for me, the good life, just being able to do what I need to do for the people that I love and spend the time, you know, that I have towards things that I feel are worthwhile and fulfilling. 
Maritza, what was the prize that you and your family made to make, you know, all of these changes a possibility in your life? I wouldn't make it all about the prize because I think we have a sense in what you've said before that there definitely is a personal prize and a personal, you know, there's definitely every choice you take closes one door and opens another. So I think we have that sense. Uh, but if you wanted to make this sort of like somewhat positive as well as touch on some of the more interesting things, like I think we love the fact that John stepped in to kind of do the house thing because I think it speaks to what so many women wish they had, right? The ability in a family for like the, the balance to kind of be divided beyond gender roles. So I think that would be interesting, but I mean, it's entirely up to you to talk about and then anything, yeah, anything else you wanted to add and as light or as deep, whatever as you wanted to go into. And for me, as I understood it, is that as you were rebuilding your wall, it also made John have to ask himself the same questions. When I look back, and I think, again, in hindsight, things are much clearer. But when I think back to that time where there were a lot of dark moments, you know, I did feel really alone. And I have never questioned every single aspect of my life as I did, you know, then. And that meant that when I say every single aspect, it it, it includes the people who are closest to me um, and our relationships and what, you know, we've spent a lot of time and effort and care building. But I had to push my thinking that far in order to make sure that every single piece of what I was carrying forward with me in, you know, this new trajectory was by choice and that I would take full responsibility and ownership of it and that it wasn't something that I could then you know later on turn around and say oh well you know my parents made me do this or society made me do this I really wanted every single aspect um, of my life to be thought out at least in that moment you know obviously you can't there's a limit to that but then when I was thinking about things, I really wanted to be deliberate about my choices and say, you know what, if this is something I'm taking on, then, then it's by choice and it's fully my responsibility. And if things don't turn out, then, you know, so be it. And it was, it was that process that was, you know, very difficult psychologically, emotionally. But when I think about that time, it wasn't just me, you know, it was was a lot of people around me who were impacted. And this is when I, you know, part of the reason why I felt that I needed to really take the time to think about these things very deeply was when I felt that I couldn't contain it anymore. You know, a lot of times I'm the kind of person who will always question myself first. You know, when something is not going right, I'll always say, did I do everything I could for this to turn out the way I wanted to? And if not, you know, where are the areas where I need to improve or change or work harder to be able to turn this around? And at some point, you know, I couldn't keep that inside anymore. I felt that, you know, the toxic sort of negativity spilling out of me and impacting the people that I love the most, you know, my children, my husband, my family. And that's when I realized, you know what, I can't do this on my own. And why have I felt that I could carry this burden by myself when I have all these people who are willing to help me? And I realized that I didn't ever really give myself permission to ask for help. You know, I'm very independent. I, I protect my independence very, very um, strongly. It's, it's really something that defines who I am. But that self-reliance actually became a handicap at some point. And that's when, you know, when I realized that I hadn't actually communicated my needs to the people in my life, but that they were absolutely willing to make changes to help me and to accommodate what I wanted, that's, that was also a very important realization. And that's what led to a lot of the way, you know, a lot of the changes that I'm living now, you know, my family structure is very unconventional. You know, I, as I said, I'm, I'm Korean. So the fact that my husband doesn't work and go to an office and that I'm the one who's, who's you know, working on my career and he is at home taking care of the kids, is, it's a bit of a shock to some people. You know, I, I know that in my family, 
in the beginning when we told them this is what we've decided to do, it was probably perceived a bit negatively. And, you know, it, there was an, a sense of what is going on? You know, why, why, why is she choosing to live with someone that isn't pulling his weight? Or I, I'm sure there were, there were thoughts like that. And, and still, even among my non-Korean friends, you know, my colleagues, for example, when I bring it up, I remember one conversation I had with a couple of my colleagues who have lived a very long time in Europe, who are of Asian descent. And one of them had turned uh, into a vegetarian and he knew that my husband is vegetarian. And he asked, you know, how do you, how do you manage the cooking? Do you do two different meals? And I remember saying, actually, you know, he does all the cooking, so it's, it's his problem. <laughs> and I just, and I remember the reaction was just a bit of a, wow, what? How, how does that work? You know, why is he doing the cooking? And so, you know, there's still things like that, that it's more amusement now than uh, before, because I try not to let, you know, that bother me. But there's certainly uh, some choices that we've made that are not the typical family structure. And what can I say? It works. It works for us. And I think my biggest concern when my husband decided to stay home was that he wouldn't be happy because I've done it. And it was really hard and I didn't like it. And, and, you know, and at the time I was also, you know, quite guilt ridden by the fact that I wasn't fulfilled being at home with the kids because, you know, there's an, there's this aura about being a mother, you know, especially a first time mother, it's bliss, you know, you should be wonderfully fulfilled being at home with your children all the time, what more could you want in life, but it wasn't for me, I, I felt lonely, and I felt bored, I hate to say this, but I, I didn't feel stimulated intellectually, and I didn't like it, and I couldn't wait to get back to work. <laughs> but that was what concerned me when, when my husband said, you know, I think this is what I want to do with my life. I thought, all right, we'll give it, we'll give it a few months and let's see what happens. And in the end, you know, it turned out very well. He's extremely happy. He does things much better than I do. I mean, he's got a different way of working. And I think that we certainly don't give enough credit um, to the people who are doing the most important work in our society. Now, there's been a lot of articles recently about COVID and both parents working at home and also taking care of the children at home and how a lot of the times it's the woman who is having to sacrifice her career and, you know, have to forego the, the conference calls because she's the one who's in charge of the cooking and the groceries. And I have to say, I've, I sometimes read those articles and I, and I feel like, oh gosh, you know, that's, that's me being ignorant of how much work my husband's doing. And I know I'm the, the guilty one in, <laughs> in that article of not um, spending enough time to make sure I'm helping out at home. And, and it's interesting because this whole Me Too movement, you know, I've, I've followed it with great interest because I have three daughters and I, I'm concerned about the world that they're going to be growing up in and, and making their way in. But I wonder, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't like the word feminist because of all the negative connotation that, that is around it. I'm not a bra-burning radical, but I do believe very strongly in diversity and inclusion. And when I think about the Me Too movement, I, I wonder if we were on the other side, if it were women who were in the dominant position and men were rising up and saying, you know, me too, then would we react differently? You know, I, I think there's always an element of, if you're in a position of power, of course, naturally, you don't want to give it up. And so have people thought about it in the other direction? And this is why, you know, because my family situation is unconventional, I, I often think about these things because I find myself in the other, in the other person's shoes when, you know, when I go to school meetings and I hear the other moms complaining about their partners not doing enough. I know that's me. <laughs> you know, I'm not doing enough. I know. And I feel like, oh, but it's not just that, you know, it's not just that. It's not that simple. It's it's really everyone has their own formula and we're all just trying to make it work. And 
I think there is room for us all to be a little bit more accepting of differences and the unconventional and understanding that, okay, you know, it's very easy to judge other people, but when you're in it, it's not, it's not that black and white. It's much more gray. Ah, thank you. It's a, a lot to think about there in my own case as well. <laughs> I, I had that exact same conversation with Jan this morning because yes, exactly about the charge mental and all that. And I was like, well, actually, I thought I wanted to complain a lot, but that was just me wanting to complain. So far, so good. <laughs> it's also good to take a few steps back and realize what you've got. No, no really well done. Uh, and Bami, here's a question that we ask to all of the guests on our show. Tell me, what is 40 to you then? I don't know if I should introduce an expletive into your podcast. We might get beeped. (laughs) (laughs) Um, 40 to me. Well, they say 40 is is the new 30, 50 is the new 40. I don't know. I, I suppose 40 to me is just another number. To be honest, I think everyone goes through life in their own rhythm, in their own time. 40, I guess, is associated with, you know, this mid-life, often a turning point, often a time of change. I think we often glorify, you know, uh, a lot of what happens, you know, in this time when we think about the typical midlife crisis as running off with your secretary and buying a Lamborghini and, and getting a new haircut. I think for women, it's a bit different. And I, I think in that respect, I'm really glad that you guys have decided to tackle this very complex topic. That said, 40, I think the last few years have been really interesting. You know, when I think back to just the past couple of years with the Gilets Jaunes movement in France and know a a certain president across the river baffling us time and time again with (laughs) the decisions that he's making and the way he's leading the country and a sense of I think deepening mistrust over the types of technology and communication we're using and then there's you know the debate over what it means to be human what machines can't do, you know, what, what it means to be human and what we can bring that there's so much going on. And this, you know, COVID to me has been 40 for humanity. It's been a moment of crisis for all of us where we've been given a bit of a kick in the butt. And, you know, I, I know we've talked about this before, but we've been sent into our little corners, you know, in confinement to think about our lives and to think about how we've been treating our planet and the choices we've made and how we've defined success in our overconsumption. You know, we need a movement. And I am an optimist, but when I look back on the past few years, the world is changing faster than, than I can keep up. And sometimes it's discouraging. And I think we are living in a, a time of social upheaval and increasing disparity and 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 it's only going to get more difficult with the economic situation now but in hindsight you know this is a reality check that i think we all needed i feel that during you know the discussions we've been able to have that have been triggered by this world crisis we are hopefully learning to listen a bit better and more closely to all sides of the story, particularly to opinions that you know make us uncomfortable. I mean, I don't like conflict, but I think I've come to welcome the fact that the, the debate is much more rich when we have a plurality of opinions. And this is how we're going to be able to come to a more solid solution to these issues. 40 to me is a, is a refocusing on priorities. You know, it's, I think for me, it's like a second, second opportunity in life to be able to really live the rest of my life with a different intent, you know, focusing on things that are truly important to me and, and thinking about 
how I want to prepare the road for, you know, our next generation of little beings. Can I just say that I love that as you say this, you have your six-year-old on your lap listening to all of this. This is like, it's such a beautiful moment for her and for you and for us to see all of this come together. And she's very quiet too. <laughs> yes, the, the days and hours of Zoom conferences have trained her well. <laughs> that would not be happening with my kids. I, I did hear a little yawn, though. <laughs> yeah. Can you think of a life-changing book or a mentor or someone who really saw you that you would like to share with the audience? There are so many people in my life that inspire me. I think it's those everyday heroes and people like you guys. Emirates, Alexia, you know, people who are doing so much, who have not, I meet people all the time who inspire me, you know, the, my new colleagues. I love it because whenever I'm with them, I'm, I'm definitely the least smartest person in the room. You know, these are scientists and, and, and doctors and people who have an enormous amount of experience in a very specialized field. I feel like I'm learning all the time from them. So, you know, I, I think everyone has a story to tell if you're willing to listen to it. And there's always something you can learn. You know, I think we can all learn from each other. If I had to pick, you know, certain people in my life that have really made a difference, you know, I can, I can think of, you know, because we were talking about the MBA, my previous manager at my at my last company who was extremely supportive and able to give me the space and the time I needed to to figure things out and I know you know she was someone who brought me that kind of support exactly when I needed it and I'm I'm extremely grateful for her for giving me that opportunity my mother always you know I'm I'm very close with my mother and she never ceases to amaze me because, you know, she also grew up in a, a time where her role was expected to be, you know, housewife, raise the kids, stay at home. And yet she went and, you know, when she was done raising the kids and while she was raising us, she went and got a degree in a field that she really enjoyed. And then when we were still in school, you know, when we were back in Korea, she did a correspondence course that took her a month at a time each summer for three years to Thailand and to Switzerland. You know, she spent a month in Lausanne. And at the time, <laughs> I remember my neighbors <laughs> saying, you know, how can she, how can you do that? I mean, how is your husband going to eat? <laughs> what, what are you, how is he going to survive? It was just unheard of. And so I know that she struggled with a lot of the kind of cultural expectations and, and required roles that are expected of Korean women. And, and in, in battling that in her own way, you know, not as an angry person, but just saying, you know what, this is what I need to do and, and we will find a way to do it. I've learned a lot from her in that sense. There are many, many books. I love books. I, I just, I, I can spend all day in my books that I've read in the recent, the past few years. A lot of books on mortality and death. I know this sounds very morbid, but actually those books are really about life. For me, when I was going through a lot of this, you know, period of thinking, I, I thought a lot about death and I thought a lot about mortality. And when I read those books, you know, they were very, they helped me in, in many ways to read about, I'm thinking, you know, about being mortal by Atul Gawand and When Breath Becomes Air by Paul Kalanithi, you know, the, the neurosurgeon who, you know, died at a very young age. And these books kind of, it helped me to think about my life, you know, and my three little monkeys and the kind of life I hope that they will lead. And you know, being able to identify an endpoint in your life really helps to accelerate all the things that you you think you know you need to do before the end comes. And so, a lot of those books really helped me. And then, then there were the big thinking books that I 
that helped me to put my own situation in perspective. I'm thinking of Yuval Hariri's books, you know, Sapiens and Homo Deus and 20, I think it's 10 lessons for the 20 lessons for the 20th century. And those books really helped to help me to realize that what I'm going through is not that unusual. A lot of people have gone through, you know, these similar struggles. And at the end of the day, you know, humanity has not existed for that long, that this is going to be, you know, as ground shaking as I think it is. And, you know, in a sense, that helped me to realize that, you know what, what I'm struggling with today in the big scheme of things, you know, when I'm 80, it's not going to matter so much. And so that allows me to let it go a little bit and say, okay, 98% sometimes is okay. You know, I don't have to do 120% today. My, my best today is not, maybe not my best that it was yesterday, but it's still my best and, and that's all I can do. And, and that's enough. So kind of the, the big picture that those books gave me were, were really incredible. And then most recently, there were two that I, I really enjoyed. And one of them is Joan Didion's The Year of Magical Thinking, which, you know, in this period, I feel like the, the mourning and the, the death and the, the incredible, you know, feelings that we went through collectively, as we said goodbye to our life, the normal life that we, we had imagined, you know, for ourselves and trying to rethink our future, there was a period of feeling really sad and, and regretful of, of, you know, a lot of things that we were never going to be able to do again. You know, our future has changed, so things are going to be different. And then the other one was Jared Diamond's upheaval, because he talks about individual crises, frameworks that are used to, to analyze individual crises brought into a, a national context. He looks at six different countries, six or seven different countries that he knows very well. And he talks about how those particular moments of change have helped those countries and shaped the identity of those countries. And I thought that, you know, given the current context and how we are all going through some sort of crisis right now, individually, collectively, you know, as a humanity, that was an interesting read. It's a pretty long list. <laughs> well, so we're going to link to all of Bomi's books in the show notes. And to wrap this up, where can people find you? Where are you? Are you present somewhere? I know I follow you on LinkedIn. I love your posts. I'm so inspired. Is there anywhere else I should turn to? I am not very big on social media. So the one place that, you know, I put my personal views and uh, opinions are on LinkedIn, which is, you know, it's, it's very professional. And I, I try to keep it to the topics that are of interest to that world. Okay. So, Alexa, are you ready? Yes. We have a surprise. Bomi has a few things she wants to share with us that we're going to link in, link to as a giveaway. Alexia doesn't know about this either, so it's a little bit of a surprise. So I Bomi, feel like it's for my birthday. Oh, <laughs> not exactly, but she just has. You know, Bomi's been very generous in offering us a view into her life and how she thinks. So she's gonna talk a little bit about you know some of the things that we would not like, get to see otherwise. So Bomi, I'm gonna let you take it from here. Sure. So. This is a, a really nice opportunity, and I, I love your idea. I wish I could offer you, you know, a, a chance to come skydiving with me or, or something really exciting, but I, I don't have any books or anything to give away. But what I can do is, you know, I, I can promise to give you something that's very precious to me, which is uh, my, you know, living in Paris. There are many, many tourists, and there are so many tourist spots. But what I reserve for my VIP friends is a list of my favorite spots, you know, that are not very touristy. They're not super, you know, exciting, but they are, they're local, they're good food, it's good wine. And I'd be very happy to share that, you know, as a, as a sort of a giveaway. And, you know, if you would like to obviously continue the conversation. I'd be very happy to join you on one of those terraces for a glass of wine. 
That is so cool, Bobby. Oh. <laughs> I, I can't wait. I hope that, yeah, I really look forward to hearing your other interviews. I'm very much a fan already and I can't wait to hear it. So thank you for having me. No, thank you. All right. I hope you all enjoy that conversation with Bomi. I must say, I am such, such a big fan of hers. Aren't you? Well, you can check her out on her LinkedIn. Just head on over to thisis40podcast.com forward slash episode one to check out the show notes and find all the links to the books mentioned in this episode. You also get Bomi's guide to her secret Paris in there. So one more time, that's thisis40podcast.com forward slash episode one. And we just want to thank you so, so very much for sticking all the way through. We have a lot of great content coming your way in the next few weeks. So what should you be doing to make sure that you don't miss any of our upcoming guests? Well, make sure you hit subscribe and follow us on Instagram. Our handle is this is 40 podcast and then you'll get the latest news. Also, if you have a chance, just leave a review for the podcast on iTunes and Instagram. We see them all and, you know, it's an incredibly impactful way for you to show your support to our show. So thank you so much in advance for that. It really means a lot to us. We're putting a lot of work into it. At the time we're recording this episode, we're all still in lockdown in Paris. So I don't know by the time you listen to this episode, whether you're in lockdown, in quarantine as well, or if you are at a point in time where we can shake hands again, exchange big kisses on the cheeks, faire la bise, and give each other big hugs and stuff, but I sure hope so. We'll see you same time, same place next week. Stay safe. Bye for now.